The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I titled my sermon, The Lord Draws Men to Himself. Do you believe that? I'd say we all do. The question is, on what basis? What or who determines salvation? Is it God's will or is it man's will? Can you join me with a, uh, for a word of prayer before we start? Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity, for the great privilege to preach your word. Lord, your word says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lord, I pray you'll renew our minds tonight, that you'll show us something new from your word, something valuable. And I pray that your people will be blessed by it and that you'll receive all the glory from it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So from the outset, I'll assert that libertarian free will is a denial of the sovereignty of God and his providential actions amongst men. God makes men to differ. God gives certain gifts to some people that he does not give to others. God's sovereignty and man's inability in salvation is a subject that causes much division, to be sure. There's a lot of emotion and confusion that surrounds the discussion of this topic. What I've observed is that there's really not a lot of willingness to deal with what the Bible actually says on the matter. And unfortunately, this leads to it being a very contentious issue. So I think what's of paramount importance is to hear and accept what Scripture has to say. And then hear what history has already said, and then we evaluate our thinking to see if perhaps we have some biases, mis misconceptions, or suppositions that have not been correct. So my goal here is to edify, it's to challenge us, challenge us, it's to sharpen our thinking. Proverbs 27:17 says, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So, my friends, if our understanding of our doctrine is superficial, if it's imprecise, then our understanding of the nature of God and how he relates to and ultimately saves men will be too. The issue of God's sovereign election has been attacked throughout church history. So, with every attack, the church must be ready with a defense. So a little perspective is helpful. Let's look back a few years. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, under the heading of the Effectual Call, paragraph 1, says, There it is. <clears throat> Those whom God hath predestinated unto life he is pleased and is appointed 
an accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. So as yet they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Now this is the summation of Romans chapter 8, chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, Acts 26, and so on. This is historic Baptist doctrine. This is historic Christian doctrine. Does God really save men? Or is, it, or is he simply trying to save them? Does God work everything according to his plan? Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 11, we read, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So, we have obtained an inheritance. When we think of an inheritance, what do we think of? I wanted a spontaneous answer. So, one afternoon, when Joshua was walking through um, the living room, I just asked him, I said, Joshua, what's an inheritance? And without hesitation, he said, the money you're going to, you're, the money you're going to give me. <laughs> and that's, that's good. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of money left, Joshua. <laughs> but whatever your mom doesn't spend, it's all yours. So, that, that's, that's correct. We get something. Property, money, something of value. By the way, when we inherit anything, do we have any control over the details of that inheritance? No. We get, we receive what, we, what we're going to receive. So in this case, what have we inherited? We've inherited Christ. His person, his grace, the blessings and promises which are in him, and ultimately, eternal life. We are told in Revelation 21.4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That is our future inheritance, heaven. But we have a present inheritance as well. So what is this present inheritance? I like to think of it as the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I don't think we often spend enough time 
meditating on these graces and their significance. They furnish us with the ability to face every challenge with peace, every disappointment with the proper perspective, every difficult person with a patient and long-suffering attitude, and every difficult circumstance with grace, even every blessing. Material blessings can bring destruction to those without the wisdom to handle them. This is, has particular significance with regard to money. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in verse 9 we read, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after your inheritance." After righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. We can experience these benefits every day if we simply recognize that we possess them. We must also practice them. Now turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us many things. Does it say that? Has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. We must recognize that these graces are a gift given to us by God. None can be generated from the depravity of our unredeemed flesh. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And in verse 12, we read, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good of his good pleasure. Excuse me. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, if we refer back to Ephesians chapter 1, we are predestinated according to the purpose of God. Being, predestin uh, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. 
So he predestinates us to be his children. We are adopted into his family. He gives us this inheritance. This is his eternal plan. His plans cannot be thwarted or frustrated. He works out all contingencies in advance. He does exactly everything he wants when he wants them done, according to his perfect will and according to his timeline, not ours. And aren't you glad about that? How do you think things would work out if he left any of this up to us? Now, here's, the, here's an important question. Does God work all things after the counsel of his own will and save men as an absolutely sovereign act? Or does his plan conform to what he foresaw would happen on the part of his creatures? In other words, did God look down the corridor of time and see what we would do and tailor his plans accordingly. That's impossible if you believe that God is omniscient. Because for that to be true, God would have to look into the future in order to learn something that he did not already know in eternity past. Are you with me? This idea of man choosing his eternal destiny finds its origin in a system of interpretation called semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism. I'm sure you're familiar, but let me give you a little refresher. Semi-Pelagianism is a modified view of the heresy introduced by British monk Pelagius, who lived between 360 and 420 AD. Semi-Pelagianism, while not denying the necessity of grace for salvation, maintains that the first step steps toward the Christian life are ordinarily taken by the human will, and that grace supervened only later. In contrast to semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism teaches that the first steps of grace are taken by God. This teaching derives from the Remonstrance of 1610, a codification of the teachings of Jacob Arminius. It affirms that unregenerate man can think spiritual thoughts, perceive the beauty and excellency of Christ, create affections for him, and thus turn in faith to him, apart from the quickening or the making alive of the Holy Spirit. They affirm that God's grace is always resistible, therefore, when one believes, it is not grace which makes one differ from another person, but naturally produced faith. So essentially, the principal difference between the two systems is that semi-Pelagianism affirms that man, man must initiate the process of salvation, and God closes the deal. Whereas Arminianism acknowledges that God initiates the process— and man ultimately makes the determination of his eternal destiny. To round it all out, strict Pelagianism's primary contention is that man has an absolutely libertarian free will that is capable of believing in God without any outside influence or assistance from God whatsoever. It affirms that original sin did not taint human nature. Now, all these systems 
teach at least some degree of autonomous human choice rather than God's sovereign grace. But God's word tells us something different. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. A familiar passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And in in, um, verse 5, we read, "For, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. For, they, for then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Would you say that believing in God is something that would please God? Of course we would. But the Bible says we were unable to please God. We were hostile to God. We were dead to God. Or maybe it could be better said, God was dead to us. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Quickening means to be made alive, revived, reinvigorated. Dead means to be without life, inanimate. So does God bring us to life from the dead? Or do we do it? Unfortunately, Many Christian churches teach that man has the ability to bring himself from death to life as an act of his free will. The basic premise of this position is this. God gives everybody a chance to believe in Christ. It is therefore up to us if we will avail ourselves of the grace that God extends by exercising our free will in believing. The question must be asked. Do we have a free will? The answer is yes. But it must be qualified in this way. In our unregenerate state, our will is free to follow any impulse our sin nature dictates. It is not, however, able to do anything spiritually good. Remember what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 7? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Before we are saved, the Bible describes us as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, Revelation, 30, uh, Revelation 3.17, excuse me, deaf, Isaiah 35.5, dead, Ephesians 2.1. 
This language is not describing physical handicaps. We understand that. We know we are not literally blind because we can see each other. And we know we're not literally dead because we're all sitting here in each other's company. God uses this stark imagery to illustrate our helpless and desperate condition. The blind cannot make themselves see. The deaf cannot make themselves hear. The dead cannot bring themselves to life. Can we agree that something outside of ourselves must act independently of us in order to bring about a change of our spiritual condition? Look with me at Romans chapter 7, please. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. This is a saved person who is struggling to overcome his old nature, right? So if a saved person is in a constant battle with their flesh, with the Holy Spirit, is it reasonable to think that a person that the Bible describes as dead will be able to overcome this serious impediment without him? The term flesh encapsulates the entirety of the unsaved person, our old nature. Nothing spiritually good can come from such a person. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that ye, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul describes the challenge of living the Christian life in Galatians 5.17, and he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. As we have already seen, the unsaved, unregenerate, natural man has no capacity to please God. He's not trying to please God. He's not even seeking him. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. I can hear it now. Wait a second. No, not me. I was seeking. I've heard that. The Bible says you weren't seeking. The Bible says nobody seeks God. Back to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, under the heading of free will, paragraph 3, we read, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. We see this in Romans chapter 5, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 2, Titus chapter 3, John 6.44. So, is it reasonable to assume that the deaf, blind, carnal, 
hostile, dead person, the word here is corpse, is going to be able to come to his senses and do a good thing. In fact, the best thing he can do and believe in Christ, the Bible says, this is not possible. But God has a remedy. Turn with me to John 6, 44. And in John 6, 44, we read, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, draw is an extremely important word. It's the Greek word helko. Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon defines the word draw as drag off, to draw by inward power, to lead, to impel. Strong's defines it the same way. If we look at a secular source, Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. To pull along, to haul, to cause to move forward by force applied in advance of the thing moved or at the forend, as by a rope or chain. It differs from drag only in this, that drag is more generally applied to things moved along the ground by sliding or moved with greater toil or difficulty, and draw is applied to all bodies moved by force in advance, whatever may be the degree of force. Draw is the more generic, uh, general or generic term, and drag more specific. We say, the horses draw the coach or wagon, but they drag it through the mire, yet draw is probably, properly used in both cases. The argument from our semi-Pelagian Arminian brethren assert that this drawing is a sort of beckoning or wooing or attempting to bring along. The implication is that this is merely an offer which can be accepted or rejected. Is that what we see in John 6.44 with respect to the word draw? Now, to further make this point, look with me at two passages of Scripture. James chapter 2. Turn with me, please, to James chapter 2. We there? Okay. Verse 5 and 6. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Draw you before the judgment seats? Now turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Keep, just hang on to that. Acts 16. And 
And we're going to read verses 18 through 24. Acts 16, 18. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hopes of, her gain, of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a, such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now notice the drawing to the judgment seats in James chapter 2, verse 6, and the drawing to rulers in Acts 16, 19. We can easily see what's being discussed here. They were being taken to answer for their alleged crimes before the civil authorities, right? Now let me ask you, have you ever been given a notice for jury duty? or summoned by subpoena to appear in court? Are they extending an offer that you can just show up anytime you want, or not at all? No. They're saying you better be here, or you're going to be held in contempt, or fined, or jailed. They're not wooing you to court. The idea here is that of being pulled by an irresistible force. The word draw that appears in John 6.44 is the same word in James 2.6 and Acts 16.19. So what can we conclude? In John 6.44, is God attempting to persuade the sinner to come to him? No. God draws us. He pulls us. He does impel us by an inward power. That inward power is the Holy Spirit who removes the scales from our eyes and shows us our depravity. He shows us what we were previously unable to see. He changes the disposition of our heart. He doesn't do this against our will. He makes us willing. Psalm 110.3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. This is the doctrine of regeneration. We read in John 3, verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell where it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. John Gill had an excellent comment on this verse, he says, Like the wind is powerful and irresistible, it carries all before it. There is no withstanding it. It throws down Satan's strongholds, demolishes the fortifications of sin. The whole posse of hell and the corruptions of a man's heart are not a match for it. When the Spirit works, 
Who can let? So is the grace of the Spirit of God in regeneration. To, the, to a natural man, it is imperceptible, indiscernible, and unaccountable by him. Now, there are some that will argue that if God draws many, but does not draw all, that this is not fair. Well, it's not fair. But we cannot insert our own ideas upon the scriptures because God does not meet our standard of fairness. Was God fair to the heathen nations surrounding his chosen people, Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Wow, that is not fair. But, but do we really want fairness? Would it be fair for God to cast every single person who ever lived into hell? Yes, it would be fair, because God does not owe us anything. We are all sinners that are deserving of eternal punishment in hell. Turn with me to John chapter 10, please. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 11, we read, I hear the pages. Are we there? We read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The question is, are we all Christ's sheep? No. Clearly, we are all not his sheep. As we go down in John chapter 10 to verse 25, we read, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but ye believed not, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. On what basis are we made God's sheep? Is it an act of our will or an act of God's will? Turn with me to chapter 2, Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Three verses we're going to look at. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a PowerPoint. There it is, don't turn. Don't turn to these, these three verses. They're there. Okay. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Titus 3, 5. Not, of works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And Ezekiel chapter 36, 26, and 27. 
Is it there? Okay. I love this verse. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Notice the eyes. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So, how do we square the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? Remember I told you we need to look at history? 18th century, old school, Baptist pastor, Andrew Fuller said, A fleshly mind may ask, how can these things be? How can divine predestination accord with human agency and accountableness? But a truly humble Christian, finding both in his Bible, will believe both, though he may be unable fully to understand their consistency, and he will find in one a motive to depend entirely on God, and in other a caution against slothfulness and presumptuous neglect of duty. And thus, a Christian minister, if he view the doctrine in its proper connections, will find nothing in it to hinder the free use of warnings, invitations, and persuasions, either to the converted or unconverted. Yet, yet, he will not ground his hopes of success on the pliability of the human mind, but on the promised grace of God, who is known to inspire them with the breath of life. We would do well to read some of these old school uh, uh, pastors. Spurgeon, Pink, Hodge, Boyce, Gill, Henry. They are far better. They have far more to say than many we read today in Christendom. We all know the story of Nebuchadnezzar going crazy in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible dream. He calls his magicians to tell him what the dream means. They can't tell him. So, he calls Daniel to give him the interpretation of the dream. And what is this dream? He sees a huge tree. The birds nest in it. All the animals of the earth take shelter under it. It feeds and covers the whole earth. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that this tree is his kingdom. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that the tree will be cut down to a stump, that his kingdom will be taken away from him. And then he proceeds, God does, to drive Nebuchadnezzar mad. And he roams the countryside for seven years like a wild animal. Now, what do you think he says when he comes out of his madness? We read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar knew who controls everything. Do we? So what do all these verses tell us? What is the point? Let's go back. 
inheritance. Does Joshua determine what his inheritance will be? Adoption. Does the orphan decide who will adopt him? Does the sheep pick who will be its shepherd? Does the blind man give himself sight? Does the deaf man say, today I will hear again? Does the lame man dust himself off and walk again? Does the crazy man decide to come to his senses? As we finish, turn with me to Romans chapter 9, please. Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, 15, it couldn't be said better. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will, compa- I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared through all the earth, throughout all the earth, excuse me. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will, he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? Or who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much longsuffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. What is critical to understand is this. We must be accurate in our doctrine. Our doctrine will influence our practice. Our doctrine will influence our evangelism. It will fuel the kind of Christians that we are. But being right on doctrine does not preclude us from being kind and understanding. We want to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want to be proud or arrogant in our positions, especially with those who disagree with us. We must must remember that We might be right on this topic, and I'm sure that we are. But we we may be wrong somewhere else. So we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. And in Ephesians 4, 29, we read, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good 
to the use of edifying. This is so good. That it may minister grace unto the hearers. And we must also understand that God will mercy whom he will. Our decisions do not activate the grace of God. God's election is not based upon foreseen faith. Faith is the result of this action of God. It is not that which prompts the action of God. So what we must do is preach the gospel to all men. We must tell them of the works of the sovereign God who is glorifying himself in Jesus Christ and then leave the outcome to God alone because it is God who will draw men to himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time again in your word. I pray it was helpful. I pray it was encouraging. I can't believe that you would have mercy upon people such as us. We're not better than anybody, Lord. We've just been benefited from your grace, from your mercy, Lord. We give you the praise for all of it. We pray that Jesus will be glorified in our lives. We pray that we will be will be people that will honor you in everything that we do, Lord. Pray that we'll be able to preach the gospel to people and that you will use our words, use your word to bring them to repentance. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.